Turn with me this evening in the Word of God to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We're just going to read part of what we're going to consider tonight. But I'll begin reading there. Let me just say, as you're going through the book of Isaiah, if you've been reading along with me, it is a continuous poem. It just keeps going. And that makes it a little difficult to cut out chunks to talk about because they're related to what came before and they will be related to what's happening afterwards. So it isn't as if we can isolate them. But on the other hand, there are some things that we can follow through. And we're going to take a section out here beginning in chapter 43, verse 1, um, which I want to note as we start tonight. This applies not only to Israel, but this applies to every person in this room. We'll demonstrate that later, why we think that way. But this is a passage for all of us to be encouraged by. And so we will begin reading in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I have given Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba as in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. I will give other men in place or in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Well, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you again and we're, we're thankful for your word. We thank you it's established. We thank you it's that upon which we can build. And we're coming and asking you again tonight to minister to us by your Spirit through your Word. We might understand your way, believe you, and walk in the good of it. And we come and trust you for it, and we're looking to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The God that we serve, the God that Isaiah served, is a God who begins things and finishes them. Everything he has initiated will be brought to its completion. Sometimes it doesn't seem like that. Sometimes it seems as if the purposes of God are being thwarted, backed off, but God wants to assure His people that He is in control. This passage is all about the control of God, of the circumstances that we're living in, because He has a plan. For that reason, we're going to think about it with regards to that plan, and, and I do want to... I'm going to stick with the notes tonight, so I want you to note that. It's... A, Big night, you know, I'm going to stick with them. There are three things it talks about in that plan. They're all important to us. The graciousness of the plan of God, clearly described in this passage. Then God's commitment. Secondly, His commitment to that plan, which is a commitment to us. And then finally, 
the purpose that he has for that plan. All described here in this particular passage. God's going to fulfill his plan. But when you get to the end of chapter 42, again, this comes right before here and we're finishing it out. It doesn't look like it. The last verses of the cha- of chapter 42 describe where Israel is going to be just before they go into captivity, or maybe you could say right after they go into their captivity. Now remember as we talk about this, it, it, you have to keep reminding us of this, Isaiah does not have the whole Bible. The events that he's going to be speaking about are at least a hundred years ahead of his time. That is, a hundred years in the future. He is going to, in this book, talk about things which are at least, you can go out to another 700 years. That's when the Lord would come, 700 years. All right? Then, of course, we're going to see tonight that it goes on to us. We're in this passage. How about that? You're in the passage. If you haven't been in any other passage in the Bible, you're in this one. All right? Because when he says, I'm going to call my, your children from my ends of the earth, that's us. That is the fulfillment of a promise because God started a promise in Abraham. He he takes out this man, one man, and he speaks to that man. He says to a man a little over 2,000 years ago, or at least a little over 4,000 years ago. I get that right there, 2,000 B.C., 4,000 years ago. He said to him, I'm going to take you and I am going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you, but here's the part that we get into on. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The salvation that I have the chance to teach about and proclaim tonight is in the heart of God way back there at Abraham's day. And he was going to choose a nation which, through which he would bring that to pass. When you get to the end of chapter 42... You have a group of people who he describes as having understood the offer of God and refused it. And because they would not take that, God began to chasten them. And they became so accustomed to the chastening of God, it's a picture being paddled so many times, that you don't even notice that it happens. You don't interpret it correctly. And so it says, when they, I'm going to put them into the fire, and they're going to be burned in that fire. And as they're being burned in the fire, they won't even know what's happening. They're just going to keep on walking as if it's, uh, it's a picture. It's a picture. As if nothing was taking place because they are so dulled to the purposes of God. Now, that, that brings us to a tough place in the book because it seems that the purpose of God has been thwarted. But it has not been thwarted because God who starts a program finishes it. And so we have the graciousness of God's plan. Let's read it here again, just in verse, just verse one. It says, Now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Those are two important words. This just takes them back. This actually would be bad news because this tells them about how important their position was. He uses two words again. Isaiah obviously knew the Old Testament that had been written before him, and he, he uses allusions to it. But when he says that, uh, but thus says the Lord, your creator, the word for creator there is the same. It comes from the same word that is in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God 
created, made out of nothing. That's what it means, made out of nothing, the heavens and the earth. Right? God was the creator of that nation. He made it out of nothing. There was no nation there. There was no race of people He took. He took a man and made him into a nation. He took something and made, or He took nothing in a sense and made something out of it. And then it says, and He who formed you, O Israel. That takes you to chapter 2. Because after the description in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis of how God created this and created that and spoke things into existence. It tells us in the second chapter, as He focuses in on the creation of man, that God took the dust of the earth, and it's a picture, again, this is a picture to help us understand, it's as if He took it into His hands, and it says, and He formed out of the dirt, out of the mud that was there on at, at in the... Garden of Eden, and he formed man. He made it by by shaping it. In a different picture, but it's a much more intimate picture. It's a picture of ones being actually interacting with God, not just being spoken to from a distance and things pop into existence. God speaks to this nation, says, "This is who you are. I called you when you were nothing. I created you, but I also formed you right along the way." I have shaped you. I had a purpose. I was, I was involved with you, intimately involved with you. And now we get to the gracious part. They have completely missed the program. They've completely missed the program. But he says in the end part of that verse, says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. I have redeemed you. Now there is a a prophetic technique, all right? We have to understand this one. Because uh, these men that are prophesying, when, when Isaiah is prophesying, he can look at his own day and describe it. When he looks forward, he's looking into a fog, into a mist. He, hear, he, he gets these messages. I don't know how he got them. I don't know what he, how he knew what to say. The Bible doesn't tell us how he knew. But he does not see Jesus Christ out there. He does not see the Babylonian captivity. He, he, doesn't, he prophesies things, but he does not know exactly what he's saying. That's what Peter tells us in the New Testament. That the men who did this, they had to search the Scriptures trying to figure out what they were saying. They realized there's a person involved here. They, had, they could say certain things with definiteness, but they didn't know how it all fit together. They're just looking forward. Right. So now he's talking about a day when he's redeemed. Because of that, because they're so often looking forward, and they, if you would, had a vision, not not a vision, but they're they're picturing something that is out there. They speak of something that is yet to be uh, achieved as if it is reality. And that's what's happening here. He has not yet redeemed Israel. They have not yet been brought back. The sin hasn't been dealt with. It will be dealt with. And so in the prophetic voice, he moves out into the future, and now he begins to speak to the people of God about their situation with him. Does that make sense? So we're, we're ahead of the game. It's not, it's not done there. When will this take place? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Redeemed you. Now, the redemption speaks about God delivering people 
completely. It, is, it talks about him coming and getting people. In a sense, that happened at, in when they were in Egypt and he took them out, but it wasn't the completion of it because their basic need, the basic need of a human being is not to be delivered from a slavery situation. That's an, a terrible thing and it's great to be delivered from it. But the great need of the human race is that the inner need which is there because we have sinned and we have become sin. All right? We don't have sins on the outside. Very important. You never picture it that way. You know that, that great picture that everybody wants to have of the balances? I'm going to put my sins over here and then I'll put my good deeds over here and I'm going to hope that maybe I'll have heavier deeds and, you know, which, whichever one goes up or goes down, I guess, that wins. But you can't do that because as much as we like to hide from that in our day and as much as you're not allowed to say it, the fact is I am my sin. My sin isn't something out there. It can't be extracted from me and put on a scale. It is who I am that if I have, if I have looked at the wrong thing with my eyes, I become an adulterer. It's not just something I did and it's piled up in a stack over here like clothes in a closet. It is who I am. If I don't tell the truth, I am a liar. And that becomes who I am. I can't be separated from that. The greatest need that a man has is to have that removed before he comes in contact with God. If you remember, if you were here when we thought about Isaiah's encounter with God. You remember that one? And he comes there and suddenly he's removed from a world where everybody sins and he's put in an atmosphere where there is no sin. And Isaiah cries out. It's a horrifying experience to him because what? He doesn't just say that I've sinned. I am that. Woe is me. I personally am ruined. I'm a wreck because I've sinned. I have an unclean voice. I speak the wrong thing. So that's where he is now. What's the great need? It's to be delivered from that. How can we be delivered from that? How could Israel be delivered from that? They could be delivered the same way that you can be delivered and I can be delivered. There's only one way for the human race, and that is the redemption that was worked out when Jesus Christ not only bore the weight of our sin, but took us. Isn't that wonderful? He not only took my sin, but he can't take my sin without taking me. He has to take me to that cross. It's a wonderful truth in the New Testament that I have died in Christ and a new man's been raised. Praise God. That's the only hope I have before God is that a new man's been raised. Now, when Isaiah speaks to Israel, he speaks to them as people who are on the other side of that event. This isn't just something that's going to happen to them when they're taken out of, out of Babylon. This is something that's way out ahead here. And so he says this, fear not what? Because I've redeemed you. The idea that is there is that God has brought about that redemption and they have entered into it. They have entered into that redemption. And now he is going to describe his commitment to that group of people. Now I want to say again, we said that it's a gracious there's a graciousness to the plan of God. Why? Because they do not deserve that. That's what the end of chapter 42 said. They were, 
They were willfully in a mess, but now they've been redeemed. And now they have the chance to walk with God. If they do, God will be totally committed to them. We want to see the commitment of God to them. And here comes some of the more tremendous verses of the book of Isaiah. As far as what God is to those who commit themselves. Let's say, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom and cushioned Seba in your place. I want to get that far in the passage because that takes us. When he says that I've given them in your place, he is not saying he selected out and just knocked these people off for, and so he could have this group of people. He chose a group of people. And he extended himself to that group of people. And they belonged to him. And then he, they ended up in a place in Egypt and God moved. And we talked about that last week. I think it was last week. But anyway, we talked about all those terrible things that God brought against Egypt. But he brought it there for a purpose so that the people could see that the gods that they were trusting in were not gods at all. It was an all-out attempt by God in dramatic demonstrations of the fact that he was in control to break those people from their sinful habits. They did not. Some did, a few did, but most of them did not. But the group of people, Israel, belonged to him. And because of his love for them, there comes a point at which those who will not respond to the message will be destroyed so that he can fulfill his plan for the people that he uh, has chosen. When you belong to God, God is for you. He is behind you. He is with you. Doesn't mean he'll excuse our sin. That's not it. The consequences of sin are still going to be there. But one thing you'll know is you will never be deserted by God for the sake of anybody who doesn't know God. That's what he's saying here. That's tremendous. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the people of this world because he's going to go on to say, let's listen to what he says in verse 4. You are precious since you are precious. That's why I gave them. You are precious in my sight. Now, in and of myself, I'm a wretch, but... Here's the point. When I came to Jesus Christ and threw myself on Him, that's all I could do, just throw yourself on Him and ask Him to save the wretch. He did it. And at that point, this this is still amazing to me, at that point, a person who had known a lot of darkness became precious to God. Not because of who I am, but because... The one who saved me and who I've been identified with is precious to God. Jesus Christ is precious to God. And he took me and put me into Jesus Christ. And if I am in him, I am precious to him. Since you are honored, how about that? And how about this one? And I love you. That's why you can go back here in this, this first part to say to them, he's trying to get them across here, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now, a question comes up. Now, those are pictures, right? They're, they're metaphors for something, all right? They're a picture that he's giving of some, of some experience that you could have. 
Um, we have a tendency, because this is such well-known passage, we identify them with certain things. Um, uh, I know that in the hymn, how, um, how Firm a Foundation, the rivers of sorrow, they've identified the idea of rivers with sorrows that could overtake you. And anyway, they, they just identify it with things. What is he thinking about here? Why did he say those particular things? Why in that order? Well, we don't know. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't know. I'm not in his mind. And all he does is gives us the picture. But we have to, to look at the past. There are two big suggestions as to why he goes at this. Either one has some, they have some merit to him. First one is this, that the two illustrations follow the two ways which God will judge this earth. In Genesis chapter 6, because the world had gotten in trouble, God begins a process of judgment of the whole world, and he sends a flood on this earth, and it sweeps it away. All right, Only Noah and his family are saved. After that's over, he promises it will never happen again. He will never destroy the earth with water again. And so as you move through the description of how God will judge, because there's still a judgment coming, it moves from the idea of the judgment by water to a judgment by fire, which develops, and that's where Peter says, well, everything you see is going to be destroyed with a fervent heat. I mean, it is, it's going to be, it's going to burn away. And that possibly Isaiah is picking that up and he's saying, as the world goes through its experiences of judgment, you will also be bumped by those experiences. And God promises this. He's committed. as is no matter what you experience, I will be with you. There is another explanation for it. It's one I kind of favor. I will finish with that one. Since, because he goes on to talk about the fact that he gave Egypt as your ransom. The order is interesting because it's what he says. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go to the rivers, they won't overflow you. Now, a little Old Testament history. When the Egyptians or the, uh, Israel was in Egypt, and God wanted to take them out of Egypt, a redemption takes place. The very first event after the redemption, after the blood sacrifice, which set them free, put them in the right place, the next event that takes place, terrible event, I, I, I used to spend a lot of time in Old Testament survey thinking about this one just to try to grapple with it. What would it be like to have me and my kids walking out and you're stuck there with an ocean in, or water in front of you, angry Egyptians behind you, in a threat of death. There is no way you can defend yourself. There is nothing you can do. And then God steps in. All right, so that's how they got out of Egypt. They got out of Egypt because they passed through the waters. All right. Forty years later, when they actually went into the land that God had for them, they weren't nearly this difficult a situation. There was no fear involved with this. They were on one side of a river, and the land that they were supposed to get is on the other side of the river. Now, the river isn't very big. The Jordan River is not the Mississippi River. I'll just tell you that. The Jordan River is a, a it's rather small river. It was bigger in those days than it is today. If you go see it today... They have to let water down into it because they want the water for other things. So uh, they don't let it run down the creek too much. But it's, it was bigger then because nobody was damming it all up. But it still wasn't very large. 
And yet when they went into the land, they walked through the river by God blocking it up. It didn't overflow them. They didn't have to fight. It was spring and it was actually flooded a little bit, but they still could have gotten through. It's still not that bad, but they didn't have to do that. Why? Because God, in fulfilling his purpose, made it smooth for them and pushed it back. So one speaks of deliverance from a horror situation. The other speaks about going forward in the purposes of God and God smoothing the way. Isn't that interesting? Now, the downside of that is that there is no third, there's no third parallel. There's no picture in the Old Testament of Israel walking through fire. All right? Not that's happened by this point. Okay, you can get to the fiery furnace, but that is still years ahead. So we can't, it could not mean anything to them. But it would seem that what God, what Isaiah is trying to tell them is that God is committed to you. When you are in the difficult place, the place you don't want to be, God's there. He's going to go right through the most difficult things you have with you. When He's taking you forward in the will of God, and that in taking you forward in the will of God, you run into obstacles and difficulties which kind of scare you and could make you back off. He's going to be with you there. It's not going to flood you. He's not going to flood you because the one who claimed you is never going to leave you. He is never going to be apart from you. He is going to stay right there with you in the most severe circumstance you'll ever face. That's a tremendous promise. Why does he do that? And again, I want to say this to everyone in this room who has committed themselves to the Lord. Because you are precious to him. That's what he says. Because you are precious to him. Because he loves you. He is absolutely committed to us. And we see something more of God's commitment to all this because he has a purpose to fulfill. And he goes on uh, again in verse 5. He comes back to that don't fear. Don't fear the dangers that are out there, but don't fear this either. He says, do not fear for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. Now, there's one other big fear that goes with this. It's not just the, how will I live through life, but how can I fulfill any real purpose for God in light of what I've done, in light of the people we've been? How could it be that you or I could do anything which would mean something for the glory of God in light of our past? He says, well, don't fear about that. Do not fear, I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. And bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. That's us. right? If you've come to the place, you have committed yourself into Jesus Christ's hands. You are one called by his name. You have been brought in. And uh, he says, I'm going to bring them all together, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have, and again, it goes back to those words he started with, whom I have created, same word again there, that I've made out of nothing. <laughs> That's what he did for every one of us, right? There was nothing to work with. There was nothing to work with. That's what, that's what grace is all about. There was nothing there. We were ruined. It was a mess. It couldn't be redeemed. It was ready for the scrap heap. You take it to the garbage dump. That's the picture that the Lord used in the New, New Testament of, of hell. It's the garbage dump. It's where you push the, put the stuff that is worthless. But out of that, what did He do? He created something. 
He created it. So that as the hymn says, and, one, and it's true, it, it's got, there's other sides to it, but it is true. Every virtue we possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are his alone. It's only because I'm in Christ that it ever happened that way. But also what happened? Not only did he create us in Christ Jesus, but what? He formed now, the formed here is important in what's coming next because the formation here isn't abstract. It's the idea that you have been formed privately, personally, that you have been made by God, that not only in a physical sense that he gave you the particular body you had and gave it to you at the particular time you, you were chosen to live there, but that he has shaped your existence this is this is really important to me. I know I say it a lot, but it, it's it's so difficult to get hold of the victory in Christ if you don't have a firm grasp of the fact that when you put your life in the Lord's hands, it is in His hands, and now He is taking and He's molding that with a purpose to an end. It may not be the end you're choosing. It may not. The molding may be difficult. That's why you're going to have to remember that don't be afraid when you're passing through the waters or through the fires or whatever else you pass through. Because he has that purpose. And that purpose is that we should glorify. We, here, right here, should glorify God. We have been formed by him for that purpose. Well, that brings us to the how that purpose is to be worked out. So we're going to read the next section here, <clears throat> which uses language that we've already considered. But uh, I want to look at how particularly is he concerned at this time that we um, glorify God. Verse 8, it says this, Bring out the people who are blind even though they have eyes, and deaf even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. And this is the picture here again. This is another one. Isaiah is full of all these pictures, so you have to keep... The thought is that God is here stepping out into the world as judge. Judge in the sense not so much of judging sin, but he calls everybody, okay, let's all assemble here. Some have followed me, some have not followed me. All right, so he's got everybody there. It's a big, a big room and he's got the whole world in there. And a challenge is going to be given to those people who don't follow him. Your gods can't talk, so you're going to have to talk for them. All right? You're going to have to speak for your gods. Now, you tell me. You've rejected everything I said in this word. You have rejected me as a person. Now, you tell me why it is that you've done that. Explain to me your philosophy of life that you have gotten, you've come to, which enables you to disregard who I am. Explain it. And he's going to ask them to do what he asked the idols to do earlier in the book. Tell us what the plan of history is. If you're going to tell each other how to live, tell me where it's going so we'll know what we're building towards, so we'll know whether we're going the right direction or not. And you and I both know that if this actually took place, 
You'll be in the same place I was before I was converted. What's it all about? What's it all about? There was a song by Simon and Garfunkel. When I was in high school, that thoroughly described what actually was going on in my heart. Cloudy. The sky is gray. Life is cloudy. And it goes on to just describe, I don't know where I'm going. He finishes it with the thought, and this is where I was, and I think it's where the human race is. I don't know where I'm going, and, or they don't know where they're going, and my friend, neither do I. And Simon was a pretty uh, depressed sort of man. But anyway, the point is this. If we're honest, that's where the human race is. They don't know where they're going. And then the other side, he says, I, I want them to tell me the truths that they come up with. Where are they getting these truths? The point is that here it is. Give testimony. Witness to me of how you arrived at this and why you believe you're safe in following your own philosophy. I want to say this for the encouragement of those. We talk a lot about apologetics and the rest of it. I think we need to realize this, that no matter how bold a person you seem to be up against, nobody can answer those questions. Nobody can answer those questions said it many, many times. It was one of the first things that started my mind moving towards what's it all about. When I took a course in the humanities, they started back, way back at Babylon, and they followed through the philosophies. And they said, we're still asking this question, what is the purpose of life? And I'm going like, you mean that all the brilliant men who have lived have given all their energies to this discussion and they don't have an answer? They don't have an answer. That's what this passage is. They don't have an answer. So they might be very bold in saying you don't have an answer, but they really don't have a replacement. Now, the other side of it is this. Let them speak. Let them present, this is the end of verse 9, let them present their witnesses. That is, the people that really know that can say, this is the way to live. Or let them hear and say it's true. Either, either, it's, it's the old put up or shut up. Either tell me which way you ought to go and give me a reason to believe that, or listen to what these guys have, or what we're going to say. And then he says this about them. This is what goes comes next, and this is important in the passage. You are my witnesses. Who is he talking to? The redeemed. That's you and me. You are my witnesses. All right? Let me read again. Declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I've chosen, because he's speaking to Israel there, but we're all included in the time stream that's here. So that you, and here's what he wants them to do. Here's what, here's what you're to witness to. Here's what I've been working in. When I formed you, this is what I'm forming towards. So that you might know and believe and understand that I'm he. That you might know, all right? Because it is essential. The whole argument against those other people is that they don't know. They can't give an account. But if we are going to stand up as witnesses 
A witness has to tell what he actually knows. How about that? We have to tell what we know. And after he says, I, after you know something, he says, then you could come to a place where you commit in faith. I believe it's just, it means that, that I've come and committed to. That I've put my weight down on what I know, the person that I know, because it's personal here. And then he says that you might really understand, that you might get it, that you might know which direction life is going. You know how he intends for you to come into that experience? Well, part of it's the word of God, right? Part of it's the word of God, because this is forever settled. But as long as this word remains abstract to you, as long as this word remains apart from who you are and what you are, you really can't testify. I can tell you to go read it, but I can't fully testify. The testimony that the living God wants out of us is a testimony that comes because when we went through the fires, when we went through the waters, He was with us and He proved Himself to us. The testimony that He is looking for in this particular chapter is a testimony to reality that you and I have proved because we took what was said here, we built our life upon it, and in the tough parts of life, we found Him to be faithful. And we have the privilege of telling that to the world which doesn't know where it's going and doesn't know how life works. It spouts off truths to each other, but it has no way to confirm them. The word is confirmed, true enough. It's confirmed by all of the fulfilled prophecy. It is confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that is true, and it's part of the testimony. There's no question about that. But in this passage, it says, I had a purpose, and the purpose was to let you walk through certain things, and I'm going to form you in that walking. I am going to make you into something in that experience. And what I'm going to make you into is a person who knows me, trusts me, and understands what's going on. What are you going through? What are you going through? It's an important question. What are we going through? There's a lot of pain being experienced in this room. A lot of difficulties. There's no question about it. I know some of them. I don't know all of them. I don't begin to know all of them. Why are we going through that? One more common question that is asked, if God is sovereign, why am I going through this? <laughs> if He loves me and He's sovereign, why? And he tells us in this passage. He first of all assures us that don't let anything that ever happens to you alter your opinion, your, your, your sense of the love of God. You are always precious to Him. And when this is all over, and this part of the experience of the human race... It's a time for the proclamation of the gospel. And in order that that might be proclaimed, he is going to take real human beings and allow them to prove who he is in the difficulties of life so that they can express that to others. When this is done, everything will be great. Right? That's what Paul said. We were thinking about this morning in a prayer course. I'm convinced, he says, that the sufferings of this age are not worthy, or the sufferings of this life are not worthy. No matter what happens to you here, it's not worthy to be compared. It's not even fair to compare it to what awaits those who love Him, because this, this passage is very similar to Romans chapter 8. 
All right? Because nothing will ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, in everything that happens to us, the worst of possible experiences, that is brutality from people because of your stand for Christ, he says, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors through him that loved us. That's the vitality here. Peter has the same thing to say concerning what our purpose is. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a people that belong to God. Isn't that what he just described? What? That you might do something. What is it? That you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who brought you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, I can't proclaim that until I have been brought out of this and I've come into marvelous light. You don't get that by reading here. That's part of it. You have to know what God said. But God wants to take us beyond that. He wanted to take Israel beyond that. And He was going to put them through circumstances so that the things which they read about and heard about, they proved so that I can say, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. How can I say that? Because he's been good to me. Now, I'm not going to give testimony tonight. But I think we could, we could go on till midnight, I believe, in this room, listening to people who have had that experience and could testify that the Lord is good. This is what he did for me. These are the things that he has done. He met this person in my family. He healed me here. He met me there. He, he gave me peace at this particular place. He get, did, you could go on and on and on with the things that God has done in His goods. Now, here's the buddies. That's all good. But we're supposed to take that message and tell them. Because they don't know which way they're going. Word of God will testify to it. But He says, and you... They're going to witness. They're going to give all their philosophies and tell all the stuff, but I want you to tell them what you know, what you understand, because you've come to faith. It's a tremendous passage. God has a purpose for Israel. It wasn't going to be fulfilled because of who they were. It was going to be fulfilled because of who God is. The God that we serve, when He starts a work, finishes the work. It didn't look like it was going the right direction. But he's going to finish it. And he did finish it. And I'll say again, the proof is that we're here tonight. We're part of the ends of the earth. All right? My relatives come from northern Europe. All right? That's the ends of the earth when you're talking about Israel. When Isaiah's speaking, that's real remote. And from way out there, people were taken because God who begins a program finishes the program. God's doing the same thing in us. God began a program, and he's finishing a program. And right now, tonight, what's he doing? He is shaping. He created us. Now he's forming us that we might be to the praise of his glory. So let's pray. We're coming and asking you to speak to us in accordance with our need so our hearts will be set on the rock and that Father, you might show us who you are. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for that promised love. And we're coming and asking you to keep us there. Let us see it. 
that we might boldly proclaim that the Lord is good. We come and trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.